Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome back to the Foreign and Domestic Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Will. Uh, and today we're going to talk about a couple things. Um, we're going to talk about the uh, couple primaries that have happened over the past couple days. Um, and I, not all of them have results back yet because voting is weird right now, but we'll talk about what we can there. Um, and then we're going to talk about some just, I, I guess, continue talking about the 2020 election. There's some new polls in, um, mm-hmm. maybe some light, more light has been shed over the shape of the race. Then we're going to talk about a couple Supreme Court decisions, and then we're going to close off with some discussion of recent developments in Libya. So, Indeed. So that should be good. Um, so, Elliot Engel, who is, like, the best, probably member of Congress in terms of, like, foreign policy. Like, he's the anti-Tulsi Gabbard, basically. Yeah lost his primary um in in his new york city district i mean part of his district is the bronx Mm. and part of it is westchester county so it's it's westchester county's more affluent whereas the bronx is like a a poorer part of like new york city proper so um i i mean honestly i have not been this upset about a (laughs) the loss of an election since Hillary Clinton lost, honestly. I, like, I was bummed that AOC won, Mm. but, like, Joe Crowley did not, like, represent one of the last gasps of something. Yeah. Like, Elliot Engel was one of, like, the last, like, I mean, he's somebody that was an advocate for human rights along around the globe. I mean, like, and that's something that, I mean, there, I I should say though, that like, while we talk about primaries in these districts, like AOC's district, his district, some other districts that come up, these are like a couple, like solidly democratic districts Mm -hmm. in New York city. Right. Like, if you look at the seats that were flipped in 2018, those were flipped by some people who actually don't have bad views on foreign policy. A lot of them are, are younger, served in the military. So that gives me some hope. Mm-hmm. But Elliot Engel does sort of represent like the death of that, right? And because he was chairman of uh, the... Foreign uh, Affairs Committee, um, and actually the person who's going to succeed him is pretty good on foreign policy too, and, and this is a phenomenon that I think is pretty easy to see, like, it kind of self-selects, right, because the the people who don't care about foreign policy, like the Congress people that don't care about foreign policy, are also the ones that are saying, like, advocating for more isolationist policies mm-hmm. like less mm-hmm. military intervention they're also not like sitting on these committees right like because yeah. that's not their interest 
And I feel like it is hard. Like, if you're faced with... <laughs> like, if you're Elliot Engel and you're, you're sitting on the Foreign Affairs Committee and you're, you're reading these reports of, like, horrific atrocities, then it's hard not to hold, hold those positions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it sort of self-selects. And you often see this with presidents, too. Like, Barack Obama changed his tune a little bit on foreign policy once he became president and was faced with some of, you know, the realities of it. But I don't know. It's he Elliot Engel was beaten by Jamal Bowman, who I don't really have any issue with. I mean, he's further left than I am, like in that sense. But he he seems like perfectly well qualified in a way that AOC was not. Mm. And like it's it's turned out that AOC's like pretty smart. I mean, she still has. She's, she's she said a lot of stupid yeah. stuff though. Yeah, but she's like not a well all politicians a lot of politicians say yeah. stupid stuff, but like yeah. she's proved to be like an adept operator at doing what she wants. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. And a lot of what she wants I, I am at complete odds with. But my point is when you, you elect somebody that's last job was a bartender, <laughs> you're not gonna get that mm. most of the time right but yeah. Yeah. i don't know so she also had a, a a primary challenge um and that was kind of hyped up and it, it was hyped up in in many ways because she was campaigning like she was taking it seriously and people like pundits kind of took that to mean that she was scared but i think it just is like she's not willing to get complacent right because she got her seat by defeating somebody that had become complacent right yeah so i i think that's part of it and and the other part of it is like People don't take, like, it is, the person that was primarying her was primarying her from her right. Like, this was a more moderate Democrat. Yeah. And the fact yeah. of the matter is, you don't win Democratic primaries from the right of the incumbent unless, unless your name's Kennedy and you're running in Massachusetts. Which we we've talked about that Senate race before, but that's that's another interesting thing. Yeah. But yeah. I also think like this is where some of the people who I think are, are the best congressmen, like who who do the best stuff, happen to be the ones like Elliot Engel. I, I think one of his problems and this is the type of congressman I'm talking about, some of them just stop going home to their districts frequently. Like, they they live almost all of the time in Washington. And, and these are usually the ones that have been there longer, that are higher ranking, that all their social circles are there. And I don't think that's necessarily, like, a, a bad thing. But 
if you're not like one of the things that was really to Elliot Engel's detriment was he didn't go home to New York when the coronavirus hit. Yeah. Yeah. And on a personal level, that's understandable. I mean, but New like, York was the epicenter of the epidemic, but in in the United States, at least, but it didn't sit well with his constituents, which is also, you know, yeah. For like, if you're running an election or a campaign yeah. like that, it's important to go back and campaign in where you're running for right but like it, it is also understandable that he wouldn't want to go back there due to the virus but it still does not change the like change the mind of constituents yeah yeah it's i mean i don't know if i have a whole whole lot more to to say about that primary I'm, I'm really bummed out about it but yeah it's it's just it's just bad that like we have someone who has such good foreign policy positions uh now basically out of congress yeah and i don't know i mean like, for for example uh he's he's done a lot of good work um in regards to just like human rights around the world like yeah. um <clears throat> he's like talked to hong kong activists he's uh encourage the uh trump administration to uh take a tougher stance on china for the uh uyghur thing um he's condemning the genocides of rohingyas in myanmar he's he's doing all these all these great things uh for hu human rights and now he no longer is in congress it's it's it's, it's honestly quite sad i mean he's literally like a a hero in kosovo mm -hmm. yeah he he's because he is like advocated the uh, the rights of Al of Albanians in Kosovo and was one of the main like uh, yeah. congressional members to uh, do that. Like the article that I had read a while ago that I, I just pulled off for this is the 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 first sentence when Representative Elliot Engel walks down the street in the tiny Balkan Republic of Kosovo, he often gets the celebrity treatment, which is just such a funny mm -hmm. sentence to me. But it's, I don't know, like, I think it's very apt that somebody takes this much initiative to, like, care about people around the world rather than just, exactly. like, in their district or in their country, which it's, is it's, the primary it's, responsibility it's, of, you know, representatives, but you also have moral responsibilities, right? Like, you have responsibilities to humanity. But he, he, in many ways, actually, you could make the argument that he's one of the main reasons that the Clinton administration went into Kosovo, because mm -hmm. they were getting political pressure from him. So, I mean, I don't know. I Honestly, I, this is somebody that maybe got a little complacent, but he has done a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. And it's especially yeah, sad to see him go in like the face of a sort of, I guess, quote unquote, rising um, movement of anti-interventionists, isolationists in yeah. uh, politics. And it is just kind of sad to see that people are 
like uh, people are th- the uh, people who support human rights and uh, intervention and things like that are losing represented representation in uh, Congress. Yeah, and I mean when when you talk about most members of Congress, their their achievements in their career, it's measured in like dollars procured for their district or like. Mm-hmm bills passed or like his successes are measured in the number of lives saved exactly i mean like there are it's hard to quantify these things but because of his advocacy on these issues he he's made such a tremendous difference so i i, I guess that's 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 nice at least i i wish he could continue making a tremendous difference but maybe he will maybe he'll uh like continue his activism although he's not in congress he'll continue to support human rights around the world i hope so i hope so and he sort of i don't know he did this in a way that i think is maybe a astute strategy like politically he was like pretty far to the left on a lot of like other issues like culturally way far to the left Mm -hmm. um in terms of i mean he supported medicare for all like all all that sort of stuff i mean he by voting records he's like far from a super moderate member of congress right Mm -hmm. and honestly to me that seems like a good strategy for this movement because like Medicare for all, I do not think that is the best healthcare policy for the United States to adopt. Mm-hmm. But I would gladly, gladly give that up, make that concession in exchange for, you know, like giving a damn about human rights on a global scale, about like intervening to stop mass atrocities. Exactly. So. I don't know. Hope, hopefully, I, I, I have a theory. A lot of this, I, I think, is caused by what people think of the Iraq War, which people, by and large, see it as a failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've actually noticed this a lot, is people take the Iraq War, and then that sort of influences all of their foreign policy opinions. Like, they think every u.s related uh intervention or and every single war is iraq and they apply that to syria to libya to iran etc and that i think sort of drives people uh, to that side of being against intervention uh being more isolationist because obviously um the iraq war did some good obviously overthrowing saddam hussein stuff but like it was just executed quite poorly and i think people just have a fear that every single intervention is going to be the exact same like that and they they take they take iraq and just apply it to the entire world yeah well and if we want to get into this a little bit which i i I think we should because it's Mm -hmm. a really interesting topic i think you had some some significant issues with the execution of iraq first of which is it was linked to the 9-11 attacks Uh uh-huh more than was warranted like it was true that saddam hussein was a was a state sponsor of terror 
but he had little to no connection to to you know that plot yeah right and like some some people in the bush administration were kind of desperate to sort of tie him to al-qaeda and that ended up yeah uh like that's why we ended up leaving some uh important uh, al-qaeda members alive in iraq when they could have been killed and we could have stopped a lot of the things and i think the second thing is the rationale for it besides the al-qaeda thing was weapons of mass destruction which there was intelligence showing weapons of mass destruction mm. but it wasn't like rock solid yeah I, I don't think it was solid enough to go to the American people and say this is the one of two primary reasons. Mm. And I think that the reason that it was done this way was political, frankly. Like, to get broad political support for a war, you have to convince people it is in their interest to engage in it. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm. And at the same time, like, if you look at what was motivating Bush to pursue regime change in Iraq, like, I, I just read this book, Bush at War. It, uh, Bob Woodward wrote it. Mm. It's about, like, the year or so following the 9-11 attacks. And it mostly focuses on Afghanistan, but at the end it gets into the sort of ramp-up to the war in Iraq. And, and the book was published before, or at least the the time frame of the book ends before the Iraq war begins. But you hear Bush in these interviews and in the like, you know, a lot of people gave interviews for this book and also there was some leaking in it. Like just what goes into writing a book about the White House in the moment. Yeah. You could see yeah. that his motivation was people are suffering. Like, this is a brutal regime. But I think partially political instinct and partially probably maybe some advice from his political people told him that that's not going to be an incredibly popular reason to pursue regime change. We have this intelligence on possible WMDs, and, and we know that Iraq is a state sponsor of terror. Let's pursue those angles instead. And that that did create this moment of widespread support for the war, but that vanished very quickly when no WMDs were found, when it became increasingly clear there were few connections to the 9-11 attacks, the public felt deceived. They said, mm. well, well, why did we do this? And, exactly, and that sort of drove support away from the war. It, yeah, it made, and then people, it made people look at the government like, you guys lied to us. Why did we do this? We should never do something like this again. Yeah, and I mean, if at the beginning he had said, look, this is a brutal regime. They've committed these horrible, horrible crimes against humanity. He, you know, wrap it up in some patriotic wording about America's duty and, like, human rights and mm. all that. It would not have enjoyed the level of support that it did at the beginning. But I think it would have been a, like... Its legacy it would have been, been better. Solvable. And it would not have collapsed. Yeah. Because the people who care about human rights in 2003 are going to care about them in 2008. 
right? Exactly. It, it would have been steadier. I think another thing is by linking it to, like, rapidly changing political opinions, um, they kind of failed to see that there's, like, long-term... It was not... It's very hard to see how this could happen in retrospect, but it... Because it seems so, seems so obvious. But there was not planning for what comes next to any meaningful degree. Mm -hmm. And that's how you got, like, Al-Qaeda and subsequently ISIS controlling large parts of, you know, it... The, the post, the, the insurgency that yeah. happened afterward and all that yeah, so, fun stuff. I mean, I understand that, like, counterinsurgency and, ooh, I'm going to say the words, nation-building are, are difficult things to do, but... They're, they're even harder if you go in without a plan. Yeah, they're also... <laughs> Like doing hard things that are that are gonna cost some money is worth it. And actually, I, I shouldn't minimize this. It, it it would cost lives, right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to minimize the sacrifice of like, yeah, yeah, people in the military who would who are risking their lives and in some cases losing them for these things, but. And it, it, it's not a math equation, but the fact is it would save more lives. Mm -hmm. And transforming a brutal dictatorship into eventually a a free democracy is a worthy objective. But exactly. We've, we've kind of gotten in, into that a little bit more than I was planning on. But um, to just sort of check in on the latest... The latest and greatest polls. Um, Five thirty-eight has, yeah, nationally, uh, Joe Biden up nine point five points. Yeah, which is, which is really remarkable. Um, e even more so when you consider the fact that only two president or, or two candidates in modern history at this point in the cycle were up by this much mm -hmm. those being um richard nixon in i believe 68 um here i'm yeah. trying to find it yeah so no richard nixon in 72 it wouldn't have been 68 what am mm -hmm. i talking um and reagan in 84 both of those were, like, just giant landslide elections. So, that's that, that's pretty remarkable. Um, and, and that kind of recontextualizes where this race is. Um, there were also, there have also been a couple of really high-quality polls put out recently. One of which is the Siena College New York Times poll. And that has Biden up 13, which, that's, I mean, that's up a lot. That's quite a lot, yeah. Um, the, according to Real Clear Politics, uh, their their average has them up 10. So, 
lot yeah. of, in a lot of these polls I'm seeing, like uh, one of them had the C, um, a recent CNN poll has them up fourteen. Yeah, and, and Fox News has just done some state polling mm-hmm. um, that has Biden up in Texas. Fox News is a, a good pollster; they do well. Um, it, he also has them up, or, or Fox News also has them up in several other not battleground states. Like, they have them up by, I, these numbers are off the top of my head, I believe like eight or so in Florida. Uh-huh. Um, which Florida, if Biden wins Florida, he's already won. Yeah. Right? Like, I, he could I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, really put that behind him either, because like, um, Obama won Florida both both uh, years, so it's it's not unlikely. No, no, no. Florida's like a classic swing state, but if you had asked me, say, a year ago about Florida, I would have said, well, it's trending Republican. I would have referenced the recent Senate races. I mean, you had a senator and a governor that were both closely aligned with Trump mm-hmm. Democrats in 2018, which was a, a wave year for Democrats. Trump won the state yeah, in 2016, win. too. Yeah. And I, I would have said, well, <laughs> look, you have a lot of elderly people in that state. You, you have a lot of white voters. Some of the Hispanic voters in that state... Um, a lot of them are Cuban, tend to vote more conservatively. Mm. But I think the major shift that has made Texas, or not made Texas, made Florida a, a state that's looking very, very good for Biden is he's actually winning among 65 plus voters. Mm-hmm. Which is a really remarkable thing for a Democrat to be doing. Exactly, because typically they are are more republican yeah yeah and in a state like florida it's especially important it's also relevant in another snowbird state arizona um which also happens to be a a battleground state um although i guess (laughs) snowbird's the wrong word because snowbird implies a a permanent residence elsewhere Uh But anyway, but states where retirees are are a meaningful segment of the population. Mm -hmm. So I think the, (laughs) I I mean, I don't know how much more there is to say, how many more ways I (laughs) I can say Biden is in really, really good shape. And I mean, one possibly underrated factor that contributes to this is that it's typical for incumbent presidents that are running for re-election to, like, try to re- win re-election. But it almost doesn't seem like Donald Trump has tried. Like, I think it's possible he might have just, like, consigned himself to this, and he's just... I, th- I think he just thinks he kind of has it in the bag. 
I think that's Steve I think that's what he might he might be. I go back and forth because I generally ascribe to the sort of Occam's razor theory that Trump's just stupid. But like which I do believe he's just stupid, but I I mean I also believe that he's not so stupid that he can't like comprehend that some numbers are bigger than others. Mm-hmm. And Biden's numbers are a lot bigger than his. So I don't know. I there's a lot of turmoil within the campaign. It, it uh Brad Parscale is on his way out who who had been the campaign manager, the longest tenured campaign manager. Mm-hmm. There was that stuff with the rally in, in Tulsa. Um, disappointing um, outcome there. And before... I think that has more issues to do with like the campaign's data operation, which was supposed to be pretty good. Or, or they said it was pretty good. Um, then it has to do with TikTok teens and K-pop fans. Because, like, a sophisticated campaign, like, easily weeds those out. Because you cross-check those registrations, like the ticket reservations, with, like, voter rolls, with, like, donor history, like, a whole lot of stuff. And you can get a good idea of whether it's legit or not. Mm-hmm. And and the campaign says they threw a lot of them out, but there it, it might be that there were some that were missed. I, I, I don't know. It... Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> he, he's in bad shape. Um... Okay, so so next thing, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we went into depth on Iraq, which mm-hmm. we plan- mm-hmm. weren't planning on doing, um, is there were a couple Supreme Court rulings that surprised some people on um, gay rights and um, the Dreamers. And people were surprised when Gorsuch and Roberts um, joined with the liberals on the court to um, basically state that sex discrimination, uh, anti-sex, laws preventing sex discrimination apply to... um, to sexual orientation as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is super shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Because Gorsuch has kind of made it clear that that that's the way he he sort of interprets it. Prior to to the opinion that he he wrote for the majority, which is notable. It's also notable, um, though make of it what you will, that um, Kavanaugh wrote a a separate uh, minority opinion, um, a dissenting opinion, 
than Alito and Thomas did, which I think further establishes that while Kavanaugh is a solidly conservative member of the court, he's not as conservative as Alito and Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. Who basically just, like, wrote this pages upon pages upon pages. I, I forget who wrote it, Alito or Thomas, but just, like, pretty blatantly homophobic stuff. Whereas Kavanaugh made a narrower point about, like, the jurisprudence and then at the end congratulated... Um, LGBT people on, on their victory, so yeah, yeah, that's notable. Make of it what you will. And then there was the ruling on DACA, basically, which was a pretty narrow ruling. Basically, all it said was that the Trump administration had had done it wrong, had like tried to get rid of it wrong. And, I mean, that's just, like, another tribute to an administration that's not run well. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I, I, it, the, the issue's pretty much decided through, tw- through the election. So, because they're not going to be able to put together another challenge to it, go back and rewrite the, the order... And, and have a suit, then a uh, lower court will likely issue an injunction, and then basically it's too late at this point for the Trump administration to do anything to try and change that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, those are the, the two rulings. There was another ruling today on um, it was something in which I, I don't recall something Related to the Department of Homeland Security, something. Oh right, right. So this one was actually interesting. In that, two of the liberal justices joined the majority. Um, although they they ruled with the majority, but only the five. Um, only the five conservatives signed on to the majority opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, the state was about um, basically if um, asylum seekers can like file challenges to expedited removal processes. I think this was decided correctly, quite frankly. Like, I am obviously very liberal on yeah. immigration, yeah. but I think jurisprudentially this was decided correctly. Um, yeah. yeah. And I'm trying to figure out who... I, I did not read up a ton on this. Or, uh, on this earlier. I'm just reading through it right now. But um, I'm trying to find who the two that ruled, who the two liberals that ruled in the majority were. If I had to guess, I'd say probably Kagan and um, Breyer. But anyway, actually, a side note, 
I have changed my mind pretty radically on something. Like, I've always been liberal on immigration, but I've decided that it's such a necessity. Like, I, I don't foresee America holding on to its status as the lone superpower for a period of time that measure, that's measured in centuries if we can't find ways to increase our population significantly. Mm -hmm. So... Oh yeah, the, uh, yeah. The, the people who ruled in favor, the, the opinion, um, were Alito, Roberts, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And then concurring uh, were also Thomas, uh, Breyer, um, and Ginsburg. And then Sotomayor and then uh, Kagan were dissenting. Kagan and Sotomayor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, any, but basically, I, I think it should be a concerted policy effort to have the United States have a billion people by, let's say, 2100. I think that should be something that is, is attempted, at least. Interesting. So. A billion people. Well, because if you think about it. When you have, like, you need that level of population growth to sustain large economic growth. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It, yeah. And you need that economic growth, and you need um, that level of population to seriously compete in, you know, geopolitics. There's also the humanitarian aspect of just, like... <laughs> people who have very bad situations where they are right now mm. should be allowed to move here. Which I, I think is a pretty simple question of human rights. Freedom of movement. Not that I'm saying open borders. You need, like, some... Like, to, for the to purpose be, to be a nation. You like, border checks and whatnot. But basically... If you want to come here, you should be able to come. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty radical idea, and it has some implications that are... Like, you'd, you'd need to adjust policy to... To fit that. Like, in, in other areas than just immigration, like, you'd need to adjust economic policy, you'd have to build this whole support system. Like, it would not be a small feat, but this is another one of those things where it's like... Yeah, this would be difficult. And... and I'm under no illusions that this is going to happen, but yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, want to talk about Syria? Or not Syria, Libya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, basically, the the main issue with Libya right now, um, as we talked about last time, uh, the Government of National Accord, um, which is the internationally recognized government of Libya, um, is which is now being backed heavily by the Turkish military, has... Um, taken a lot of towns that were previously held by the opposition government known as the house of representatives um they basically control pretty much all of the western coast of libya as well as um uh certain uh, settlements south of that um 
so they, they have a good chunk of territory that they didn't have before um and there's been a a, a large scale withdrawal of the uh house of representatives uh armed forces known as the libyan national army um and now there's uh sort of been a halt in the advances and stuff because um there's international calls for ceasefires and things like that um but there's been uh, an issue recently around the uh city of sirt which um mm -hmm. say again no i was just saying mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah um <laughs> around the city of Sirte, which is currently under the control of the Libyan National Army. Um, it was previously controlled by the GNA, um, and then the LNA took it uh, back in May. Uh, May 20th is uh, when they um, took the city. Um, and now, um, as the GNA is advancing, uh, Egypt, which is a staunch supporter of the House of Representatives and Libyan National Army, um, their president said that uh, if pro-GNA forces advanced uh, on Sirt, um, it could provoke a, quote, direct intervention by Egypt. So um, essentially Egypt wow. is threatening to get more involved in the war. Obviously, they do provide the uh, House of Representatives with uh, material support and things like that. But um, this could possibly mean uh, full Egyptian intervention in the region could sort of be a proxy war between uh, Egypt and uh, Turkey because Turkey is backing the recognized government and Egypt is uh, backing the HOR government. Um, the GNA actually responded uh, about that. Uh, they said they called it a declaration of war, which it pretty much is. It's basically just telling the government not to do, not to retake a city from a rebel group. Um, or they would send their armed forces into the country. So it, it pretty much is. Um, Turkey, uh, it, it's, it told uh, the LNA forces also six days ago to withdraw from Sirte. And uh, so Sirte is now becoming a point of contention. Um, further Egyptian presence in the region could mean a lot. I mean, um, Egypt's dealing with a lot right now, considering uh, there's an issue with Ethiopia about uh, damming the Nile River, and Egypt's not happy about that and stuff like that. But this this could uh, this could really be uh, interesting and pretty bad, honestly, for Libyan peace, um, especially now because this is one of the Libya is one of the main points of conflict in the world right now, um, especially during the virus. Uh, the UN has is has obviously called for a global ceasefire or whatever around the world um and intensifying the libyan conflict would heavily go against that especially during the virus it could be pretty bad yeah well uh i i don't know that i have really anything to add to that mm -hmm. <laughs> um I knew just about as much about that as anybody <laughs> listening to this. But, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, but yeah, basically... It seems like a, something that should probably be getting more attention. Exactly, because right? <laughs> Syria sort of has slowed down um, in, like, major developments, and Libya has just been heating up uh, over the past few months uh, with increased Turkish intervention in this and now Egypt's threatening to get more military involved militarily involved it could be it, it's going to be interesting to see how this develops uh, what the GNA is going to do about that and if Egypt is actually willing to put their their military in mm -hmm. Libya we already know that there's Russian 
backed uh, PMC groups in Libya fighting alongside the government of that or the House of Representatives. Um, and the U.S. has also uh, it's it's AFRICOM has um, uh, picture evidence of the presence of uh, the Russian Air Force or Russian Air Force uh, jets in um, Libya. So it's basically shaping up to be like the sort of new proxy conflict uh just like syria and it, it'll be interesting to see how it goes yeah well that's i i think that's a wrap for foreign and domestic indeed i'm will and i'm jake and we'll see you next time